Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the third episode in our Top 40 Career Series where we are updating after five years the entire concept of the 40 best careers in NBA history based on their on-court play. If you're unfamiliar with the criteria, we talk about that in the first episode of this series a few episodes back on this podcast stream. And then, of course, if you want to dive into that old work, you can check out the entire Backpicks Top 40 article series. It's it's a short 85,000 words, I think, Cody. It's a, it's a quick read. You can check that out over on Backpicks as well. But today, we are going to continue to make our way through the best careers in NBA history, according to my just completely arbitrary and random estimations of, of player seasons, and then adding up all those player seasons and seeing who gives you the most mileage. Last time we discussed Isaiah Thomas, a new member uh, on the list, Clyde Drexler, Elgin Baylor, Walt Frazier. Where did we end last time? Did we end with Paul Pierce? Yeah. Did we end with Patrick Ewing, actually? Maybe we ended with Patrick I Ewing. I think it was Patrick, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get we'll get to some more names today, but let's start with the other new member of this list. We had 38 players coming uh, from the list last time that remained and two new members that kicked out two old players. We talked about that in episode one. And this is the only modern current player to crack the top 40 in career value. He's been in the NBA since 2010, and he is none other than James Harden. Oh, I can't wait to hear about reactions for this, because we, we talked about Jokic, Giannis, Westbrook. Harden's the one that makes it in here. I, I can't wait for that. Well, I mean, some of it is peak, which we'll talk about in a second, and some of it is just coming into the league earlier and playing really well at a young age. I don't know how you feel, Cody. I don't know how you feel listening at home, but if you've been following the NBA for more than a decade... It was now 10 years ago in 2012 that the young baby Thunder, the team of the future, the team slated to win all the championships of the 2010s, made it to the NBA Finals against the disappointing Miami Heatles and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and who knows what kind of groin abdominal injury Chris Bosh had going on at the time. And... Uh, That team, of course, lost in the finals. They had three MVPs on that team, three future MVPs, Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and the aforementioned James Harden. And I think, Cody, in 2012, James Harden was essentially, by my estimation, already playing at an all-star level. And at this point, this is a year before he actually makes an all-star team, if I'm correct. And he's coming off the bench at the time, right? Right. So you have a situation that we've talked about a ton on this podcast over the years, which is that his raw per game numbers are suppressed a little bit because he's playing with two other mega kind of stars in Westbrook and Durant. And because of a little ball dominance with Westbrook already being out there, Durant already being out there with scoring, he's playing the six man role. He's essentially playing a Manu Ginobili kind of role. And I actually think he he not just because he's left handed. But his ability to pass, his shooting, his pick-and-roll game, and the efficiency of his actions back then, he was very quick. You could already see him using crossovers, change of pace, change of direction, strides. 
I think he was similar in style to some degree when he was younger in Oklahoma City to Manu Ginobili. He just didn't have his own team. He goes to Houston the next year. He gets his own team. They're not a very good team. And then he is showcased. He's the centerpiece. I think you found, didn't Jeff Van Gundy have a quote about this in the 2011 playoffs about if Harden had his own team? Did he have a quote like this? I honestly yeah, I don't think, know. I think you found one. There's some quote about how if he had his own team, he would already be averaging 18 points a game or something like that. Uh, you sent it to me. Just take take my word for it. Co- Cody's looking at me. He's like, I don't remember finding this quote. Um, you did. Trust me. You sent me this quote. I believe so, you. So he goes to Houston, and then you finally get you get the opposite effect. Now he's on a team where he gets all the touches. He gets to run all the pick and roll he wants. You start to get to really see the stats pop. And, of course, he's in his fourth year in the league, so he's expanding as a player. Man, was he much quicker back then. Um, but you you still see the foundation in terms of getting into the jump shot, using strides and change of pace and deceleration, pocket passes and pick and roll. And so I think this started, if you think of 2012 and you think of where we are today in 2022, that is like a decade straight of not just all-star level play, but he continues to improve. So in 2014, I would say now we're at like an all-NBA level. Uh, An interesting question for me, we're going to talk about Reggie Miller today as well. He comes up uh, at this point on the list, similar spot on the list. And one question I had when thinking about this podcast episode is like, is Harden's 2014 offense, or I guess because of the defense, his overall game, is, is that starting to get to peak Reggie Miller? I don't know about you, Cody, but I'm comfortable. Harden won an MVP. He ultimately gets to a different class of player, especially as a singular ball-dominant force. I mean, he's, he's one of the sort of... He's on the short list, let's put it this way, of the all-time great heliocentric one-man offenses. But this is like teetering on the edge of one-man offense Harden. He's not quite there. Uh, still good enough for me to be around all NBA level. And then 2015, the Rockets breakthrough, make the Western Conference Finals. It's before D'Antoni. D'Antoni hasn't arrived yet, but we're still playing Harden ball. There's still a ton of space. And, um, and there's like a down year in 2016, both statistically and in terms of accolades and coaching. There's a coaching change. And then the D'Antoni era comes to Houston, 2017, He's there for a couple seasons. This is where I think we have Harden at his peak. We have some statistical madness that we're going to talk about that he achieves. He wins an MVP. He almost wins multiple MVPs. He's right there at the top for a couple seasons. In 2018 with Chris Paul, of course, they take the Golden State Warriors to seven games, one of the great non-title teams of all time, in my opinion. And so to answer your question, this just becomes... A, a ton of high-quality seasons compared to a lot of the guys we talked about in episode one that were either didn't make or were left still in honorable mentions because, like, you get a decade, you get 10 or 11 All-Star years, five, six, seven of those years are all NBA. Multiple of those seasons are in the sort of MVP-ish, low-level MVP-ish, soft MVP, whatever you want to call it, category. That's going to elevate you over all but you know, a few dozen careers left in in NBA history. I think a pretty underrated part about this entire run, like you were saying, and I think this is really relevant, especially bringing up the fact that we talked about 
Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis in the past, is Harden was an Iron Man for years and years. Like the the recency, I don't think it was until he went to Brooklyn when he started really struggling with injuries in the same way. Like I don't know how many games in a row he played, but I thought he kind of prided himself on being sort of an 82-ish, 81, 80 game player, not missing time in the playoffs. So when you have this sustained success, you start as basically an all-star level bench guy and then build up to whatever MVP level and you're not missing time, that adds up really quickly to your point. Yeah, and you um, you prompted me when we started this to lay out for everyone, you know, how many like all-star seasons, how many all-NBA seasons, how many MVPs, who has the most MVPs. We'll get to that when we get to the top of the list. But just to have clarity on it, it's 11 all-star seasons for me going back to 2012 for James Harden. I, I did think he was at that level offensively this year as well. And then out of those, eight of them are all NBA level. And then there's a the, the peak in the middle, I think, uh, is even better in the sort of soft MVP category. So you, you add that all up and that's your answer to the magic question. You just are going to have more value that you've accrued over your career than some of the other players. I mean, I, Cody still has been sending me nasty grams that Harden is higher than Giannis right now on the list. But if Giannis plays another five or six years like this, then he will certainly pass Harden and many other people. You know what? I'm, I'm starting to accept it. I'm looking at the resume. It looks okay. Something that I think helps Harden that's really interesting is I remember um, back when I actually cared a little bit about the draft, I remember there wasn't like a lot to do about his athleticism. He was brought in kind of as a shifty guy. And that's something that I think he's been able to bank on his entire career. So he's got this really quick, twitchy dribble that you see. And it's not necessarily playing above the rim or always being the fastest guy out there. But it's this ability to just like constantly know exactly where he's going to be and know exactly what his moves are going to be more than the defender is going to be. And it's kind of setting it up in that sort of way. So, um, yeah, I think that's something that's helped him out, too, is even though his his athleticism is declining a bit, he still has a lot of these skills that are overall helping him a lot. But I do have a a bigger question about Harden because there's something that that never seemed right about Harden to me, something that just kind of bothers me about his career. So he was an all-star as a bench player with OKC. For me, yeah. He didn't make it officially until yeah. 2013. So, yeah. Sorry, he was an all-star impact level player as right, a bench right. player. Okay. Leaves, goes to Houston, becomes Helio God in the way that we know about it. Like, changes the way that we think about basketball. Everyone's freaking out because it's like, this is the only way that people play basketball anymore. But, and he raises up to maybe this MVP level. But, Ben, he, he changed his style dramatically. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if I'm off base here, Ben, but it feels like he was... His game fit next to other high-end talent just a lot better when he was with OKC. And then, you know, he gets to Houston. They get rid of Dwight Howard, make it more attuned to what Harden's going to be doing, make it more Harden ball. But, like, he's sacrificing some of that, like, being able to play next to other high-end guys. So I I don't even know what my ultimate question here is, Ben, but do you think he's able to ultimately rise to these same heights if he doesn't develop in this Helio, this is my world basketball, and if he's actually next to some other guys and has to keep this kind of uh, more egalitarian ball in mind? I feel like your question is really about whether that was an optimal path of development. Is that a good way to phrase what you're asking? Yeah, it sounds so weird because I'm asking if like an MVP level player actually followed an optimal trajectory, but I can't help but but think that when I look at his career and look at his OKC days. Well, part of me thinks that Harden, maybe more than any player in NBA history, has sort of 
squeezed more value out of little tactical tri- I mean we know about the officiating stuff that developed more and more as he got older with learning how to foul draw and things like that but even just going back and watching like 2013 Houston he gets the summer off he has his own team they're going to run more through him and the way he uses his strides I mean there weren't a lot of players in the early 2010s using kind of like power decelerated euro steps into defenders in the paint while cupping the ball like a fullback um you know certainly maybe that's where the Ginobili connection comes in because he had some of those things but Harden would do it in these very extreme ways where on one possession he would hop left hop right in the paint to try to create a little space and finish because to your point he wasn't a vertical athlete it had its strengths and weaknesses that we'll talk about later But then on the next possession, he'd come down the court and instead of those power decelerated strides, he would take like this sort of off rhythm, really long two step. Like you just don't expect someone to take two jumping deep steps around the defender and pick and roll. And he would do this on back to back possessions. And um, I think he just squeezed an incredible amount of mileage. I remember watching him at Arizona State and thinking, boy, he's going to struggle a little bit in the NBA because he can't get great separation or elevation on his jumper. But of course, over the years, he learned how to put the ball on a string. Um, Great Debates podcast episode number 34 that I did years ago with Harden and Kobe and Wade. I called him the cuttlefish of basketball because he he hypnotizes his prey to sleep as he's dribbling. And of course, this became the natural segue into the step back. And that's when I think we get to this peak MVP level 2017, 2018, where he's blending two really basic dimensions, maybe better than anyone ever. I'm either going to go back and shoot a three. And if you come at me, I'm also going to draw a foul on that. So don't don't over pursue or you're going to put your hand in the cookie jar. And if you lean a little too far at me, then I'm going to hesitate, rock you to sleep and go straight to the basket. So it's this tension between stepping away from the basket and driving toward the basket. This is a very long-winded and stalling answer, so I could think about your question. Uh, in the background, I've been on autopilot thinking about this. I, I think it's hard to say it wasn't optimal for him to develop in this way. But I think what your like inclination is pulling you toward is it would feel a lot cleaner if we just talked about Harden like he was a much more balanced player. Like he never averaged 35 points a game. He never was in these multiple MVP races, winning some and just losing some. He never had these, why isn't he scoring 35 a game in the playoffs? Like what's going on? If he had just continued on a path, um, just to pick, you know, one of my favorite guys to talk about, like James Worthy. If he had just stayed in this like, I'm a number two. Sometimes I can ramp up. I'll develop other things. In Worthy's case, it was post-game, mid-range. But, you know, maybe in the modern game, it's like, what's an extension of what Harden was doing? Is it working on more cutting off ball, more catch-and-shoot three-point actions? I mean, also, athletically, I think he probably catered and tailored his moves and his development to his athletic package maybe better than most players ever because he's not an explosive vertical athlete. Um, And if he were to play a mid-range heavy game, if he were to play a game, let's go back to Isaiah Thomas. We talked about him last time. Isaiah is getting up in the air, in the paint, and moving his body around contact in traffic. Harden's not very good in traffic. 
if he played in that system, if he played with no space, if he was constantly trying to get in and finish over and around bigs, that's not his athletic strength. He doesn't have really the soft tools to do that. But how can I go sideways? Remember, he started with those huge sideways steps before he started really getting into the hopping back, step back three. Um, can I step back? Can I go forward, stop, and then go forward again and create space? And then, of course, finally just learning within that entire dance how to rip through, how to get you up in the air, how to get his body into you to create free throws from that. So in that sense, Cody, I'm not sure we would be talking about him this high on an all-time NBA list as you know one of the great, uh, not just great careers, but great capacity to be a one-man offense in spread pick and roll in the NBA if he didn't develop that way. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think it's really interesting to look at kind of his development statistically regarding this question. Because what's fascinating, and I think a big part of Harden's game and the way that people analyze him, is this idea that maybe he drops off a little bit in the playoffs. And I'm definitely going to ask you about that in just a second. But what's really interesting, Ben, is if you go back and look at those the three years that he made it to the playoffs, three years in Oklahoma City that he's there, his efficiency, besides that last year, his efficiency ramps up in the second season versus the regular season every time, right? So in 2009, 2010, Relative true shooting percentage goes from 0.8% to plus 6.2%. 2010 to 2011, plus 5.7% to plus 9.5%. Now the third season, right, in the regular season, he has a plus 13. (laughs) Plus 13 relative true shooting percentage. That drops down to a really pitiful plus 9 true shooting percentage like those are numbers that he's really not hitting at any point in the playoffs maybe maybe he flirts with it a couple of times but he's not consistently consistently at that level so it's almost this idea that like maybe maybe he ends up higher on an all-time sort of list like this but I feel like if you know because I think a lot of people like doing all-time team building stuff if he followed that path he might actually be a lot higher on the like guys you absolutely would want to have on your team if you're trying to build a super team because he can just go next to these other guys. I don't know if that matters to people. I don't know if that's a conversation that's that's useful to have about a player, but he seemed to be on this trajectory of like an all-time efficiency mid-scoring guy next to other talent. Hmm. Yeah. I don't I don't know how much I agree with the conclusion though, because you're still talking about different, totally different tiers of volume. I mean, you were reading the efficiency numbers, but that's like 16, 17 points per 75 when he starts. Even in 2012, when I have him at all-star level, that's like 22 points per 75. So it's it's different volume and it's a different role. Uh, Either playing second, you know, he gets to attack and feast on second units or he gets to play next to one of Kevin Durant or Russell Westbrook uh, on a championship level team in Oklahoma City. You go to Houston... And you are doing the heavy lifting. And it's a completely, completely different role. I don't know today if you put Harden... uh, Well, I don't mean today, like 2022. I mean me today. I don't know if you took peak Harden and put him on a team with two or three other all-star level players. 
if he's going to really ramp down his scoring. But I imagine if he did, the efficiency would go up. Because, for instance, Cody, in 2021 in Brooklyn, both in the regular season and especially the playoffs, you saw that. He became more of a passer. Um, I mean, he's already a big-time passer. We're going to talk about some of these heliocentric one-man offensive statistics in a second that are just mind-bogglingly hilarious. Uh, But, and some of them may be less impressive than some people think as well. There's a very interesting nuance there we'll get into. But if you look at Brooklyn, he said, I'm more of an actual point guard that can scale scoring up and down, and I'm going to scale my scoring down. And the result of that was... Uh, in 322 playoff minutes in Brooklyn, he scores, it looks just like Oklahoma City, he scores 22 points per 75 on plus 12% efficiency. So I get where you're coming from, but I, I actually think you're just kind of talking about different volume and different role. And it's hard to say like his continual development in Houston didn't objectively continue to make him a better and better player and a more and more valuable player. When I think about like the, the oxygen in the room, right? It seems like when Harden is the helio ball, he's obviously sucking up all the oxygen in the room. He is the end-all, be-all of the offense for a period of time there. And when we look at these Brooklyn years, or at least that Brooklyn playoff run, it looks almost identical to his Oklahoma City days. But the one stat that actually balloons, balloons for him, Ben, is his box creation, right? It's at 5.7 in Oklahoma City. He's creating about five, about six-ish shots per 100 possessions for his teammates. That's up to 13 in Brooklyn. 13. So when you compare, pair the scoring level that he had with Oklahoma City, but then you bring in this fully developed passing package that he starts developing throughout his years. I don't know. When I think about it in terms of like, would I rather have the extra, what's his peak scoring? Like, like would I rather him be scoring 31 points per 75 or 22 points per 75 on the same kind of passing volume, but he actually has better efficiency with the lower scoring volume? I'm not really sure, Ben. I think that's where I'm stuck with Harden. Well, he's such a great case study of how we think about things. Like, more is not always better. More production does not always mean more value. And so, if there were there were lineups in 2019 and 2020 where he's averaging... I mean, this is, this has just got to be, like, at the top volume we've ever seen in the first 75 years of the league. He's averaging when Chris Paul or Russell Westbrook go to the bench in 2019 and 2020, 40 points per 75 on positive efficiency. And his box creation estimates are all-time highs as well at like around 20 or 22 shots created per 100. So this is an offensive load, meaning the direct involvement in a possession of like 75. That means like three quarters of all possessions He's the one creating the offense. It is literally the definition of a one-man offense because to get even higher, don't forget you have transition where other players may not need to involve, you know, you get a steal, you get a run out, you don't have to pass it backwards to James Harden. And then like loose ball fouls and all kinds of things like that. In other words, there's a ceiling on, on what your offensive load can be. And he may have touched it. He may have truly hit this like everything goes through me. And it really gets at what you were just saying about how more production does not automatically mean more value because you can just think about this as a thought experiment. If you, maybe you'd say, well, Harden's an, an efficient scorer and he scores 40 points per seven. What if, what if he scored 50? What if he scored 50? No, let's say 60. He scores 60 points per 75 and then he creates some open shots the rest of the time. 
Like, doesn't that mean he must must be the best? And the first thing I would do is say, well, is his team getting better? Is the offense getting better? Because the goal of basketball is not for an individual to score. And I've talked about this with Wilt Chamberlain and Think of Basketball, the book. But in this case, the goal of basketball is not for an individual to score or assist on everything and rack up all these production points. So if Harden at 30 points per game, or let's take it all the way down to your Oklahoma City point. Let's say he's 22 points per game and he's blending into the offense and he's playing off ball. Let's give him that Brooklyn passing that he's developed over the years in Houston where he becomes one of the best pick and roll passers. If he's doing all that and he's able to make decisions on the court that are like, this is a high percentage shot that I'm going to knock down or this is a high percentage pass that I'm going to make or I'm going to move it, get off it, put myself in an advantageous position by cutting and all this helps create spacing, gravity, you know, moves the defense around, and our offense is awesome. That's better than taking that same offense, giving the ball to James Harden on 90% of the possessions, having him go to the locker room with 60 points and 16 assists as his per-game average, and having the 11th best offense in the league. And I think that is... The, of course, with Houston, it was still a great offense. So it's, we're not... This is a thought experiment. We're not saying that him actually having one-man offenses were problems. His one-man offenses were very good. But I think the difference between uh, other point guards, let's say, and I, I think the right way to think about him is a point guard, a lead guard dominating the offense. And if you compared him to Magic Johnson and Steve Nash, those guys can modulate their scoring up and down, but maybe not as high as Harden. But they're also much better passers than Harden. Like Harden is a really good passer, and those guys are the god tier of passers. You could also compare Harden to LeBron James and Michael Jordan in this same model of lead guard, everything runs through you. Uh, Jordan was a little more off ball, but you still just have a tremendous amount of attention and possessions flowing through the pressure of his scoring. Jordan and LeBron are God-tier scorers. May, are, are both of them better passers? I think probably LeBron at his peak is a, is a better passer than Harden personally. Jordan also has some serious passing moments uh, at his heyday. So it's like, that's one way to think about what, what might be getting stuck in your, in your mud. Um, is that an expression? It sounds like a Southern expression. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, Cody? Like, like He's playing this role and he's very, very good at it. But it's also not necessarily the same God-tier scoring, and we'll talk about why and some stats in a second, that like Michael Jordan can bring, but it's not the same God-tier passing that Magic Johnson can bring. And so you're not necessarily modulating or choosing between one of those two options. So you brought up a lot of really good players right there, right? Like Magic Johnson, LeBron, Michael Jordan. You can go on the street and people are going to know who you're talking about, right? These are guys that thrived both in the regular season and in the playoffs. And it, it seems like a, a conversation that keeps coming up with Harden about this is like this kind of style doesn't necessarily help build a championship level team, even though they were quite close to getting past oh, the eventual champion. So I was just wondering, does his style, do you think, do you think it actually hamstrings a team's cap for how good they can be in the playoffs? Well, of course, I think if you played through Harden that way, that was the that was sort of what I was alluding to earlier. Um, I think that's probably true for most players. It's very hard to just run everything through one guy and be absolutely amazing. I don't agree, though. I mean, of course, they have championship level teams. They almost won a championship uh, against a dynastic Golden State team. So 
you can be that good as a one-man offense. You can build the system around him that they built in Houston with space, three-point shooters, small ball, spread pick and roll, and then switchable defenders on the other end. You can build that system and have a great team. But no, of course, I don't think there's much evidence that that style is ideal if you want to blend with other players because you need to provide off-ball value and you could probably get more juice at the end of the day by diversifying your offense as a way to constantly have counters and punch holes in the defense if the defense goes big. Uh, you know, basically, you can constantly zig when the when the defense sags, that kind of thing. And I think based on that answer, what you just said is why I'm still... I, I just don't know. I just don't know where I land on peak Harden or where I would personally rank him with anything because I'm like, yes, I get how good he is, especially with all his production, produced a lot of offenses, but was this the ideal path? Going back to the original conversation, I just I can't leave that alone, Ben. I feel like I feel like there's a, a possible world where we have a Harden that actually peaks even higher than this. So so let's put some numbers on this. We've been talking about this, uh, and it's possible, depending on how you feel, uh, which side of this debate you're on, you're, you're screaming at your uh, podcast player right now. Um, let's put some numbers on it. So Harden peaks... It, we have we we have plus minus data, right? We have what happens when a player goes in and out of the game, and then we can adjust that plus minus. It's not perfect, but we can adjust for opponent quality and teammate quality and all that stuff. In the playoffs, that's really hard to do. So one stat that I've used a lot is this augmented plus minus, which takes your plus minus data, it takes information about your team, and it kind of tries to estimate like how valuable are you per game based on this on-off data and based on some other stuff we collect in the box score and things like that. Harden's peak in 2020 in this number in the playoffs was plus 4.8. Uh, so about five points per game in this stat. That's the 24th best peak since 1997. So it's very good. I think that is certainly in line with thinking very, very highly of, a, say, an MVP caliber player. But it is also not top five, top ten. I mean, even in just pure adjusted plus minus, if uh, I don't think Harden ever has, depending on who's running the numbers, I don't think he ever has a top five regular season. And the regular season is where he succeeds. And the regular season is where you see those, you know, without Westbrook, 40 points per 75. I mean, in 2019, I think he averages just 36 points per game. The year before, it's like 32 points per game. So you have these huge stats that we've talked about. 36 points per game, eight assists. That must mean he's like the greatest player ever. I think Daryl Morey had some quote during one of those scoring seasons about how he's like the most efficient or, or best offensive scorer ever based on some of these raw numbers but one that doesn't necessarily hold up in the playoffs in the playoffs you actually see numbers that are a lot more in line with other great players that we talked about like his his best playoff run in terms of scoring is more like 30 or 31 points per 75 uh, which again if you're not familiar is equivalent to like per game so think of like a 30 point per game score on true shooting percentage, it's like two, three, four percentage points better than the league. That's great, but that's not the same thing as, you know, 40 points a game on plus 7% averaging nine assists and uh, creating every shot and things like that. So if we look at some of those numbers, 
it again supports this idea, and you can do it with other players throughout history, that just because you're doing more doesn't automatically mean you're the best offensive player. So what you cited earlier, that was, that was APM, right? An adjusted plus minus, an augmented plus minus of sorts? For the playoffs, because the samples are small, it's augmented plus minus. We do have full regular season adjusted plus minus for Harden's entire career. And I believe whether it's Ryan Davis, who runs it on NBA shot charts going back to 2010, or Jerry Engelman, who's, it doesn't matter what study you look at, I believe he's never finished top five in a season. So could, could somebody say that the reason that his absolute peak is the highest, that's bringing in all of his impact, is that, you know, Ben, maybe we're focusing too much on his scoring, on his offensive game. Is it just that his defense is actually bringing him down that much? Is that ultimately what's going on? Does he actually peak offensively as, like, one of the greatest offensive players of all time, but that defense, comparatively to other all-time greats, just is bringing him down? Is that what's going on here? I think so, essentially, yeah. I think the question for me is whether he's one of the top 10 offensive players of all time at his peak? I think that's the interesting question. So when we think about heliocentric style, one-man offense, again, I, I think the right way to think about it is a lead guard or a point guard who does a lot. He's He may be, Cody, the best ever at blending his dribble into a lob pass as he comes down the lane and and just feeling when the defender is leaving the dunker spot guy or leaving the roll man that he's playing pick and roll with. He is one of the best ever at the left to right pocket pass in pick and roll. And of course, he is a very good passer in general, uh, pick and roll skip passes or lay down passes as he comes down the lane. So you've got that. You've got his scoring. You've got a history of very, very good offenses, great offenses, maybe even in the regular season. In the postseason, they're not quite as good. But of course, he's he's like a one-man offense out there. The teams aren't constructed with a ton of offensive talent. They're more constructed with 3 and D guys and spacing and maybe some stretch bigs. You know, Ryan Anderson makes appearances in Houston and, and things like that. So I think the question for me is like, can you get him into the top 10 all-time offensive peaks, and then it's his defense that's bringing him down. Well, I'm going to fire that question right back at you, Ben, here. Do, do you think Harden gets to a top 10 all-time offensive peak? I don't quite have him there for some of the reasons we've discussed and some of the reasons I'll get into in a second. But I think if I squint and I go with my high-end evaluation. I say, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more credit for that. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that. I'm going to say you scale a little bit better as your typical kind of like good teammates around you improve. You can fit in with them better. I think you get him to the edge of the top 10. Yeah. I I think you can make an argument. Let's say like eight, nine, 10, those guys at the back of the top 10, I think you can kind of make a, make a case for that. At least I could to myself. Yeah. Okay. And I know, I know you like doing ranges, Ben. If you're not going to be that charitable with Harden, how far down do you... Where do you think the range goes down for him? Oh, it's probably like you're still a top 25 offensive peak, maybe somewhere in that range, top 20, top 25. Yeah. I mean, I have him as a top 20 offensive peak, so it's really a matter of, you know, do you go down five more spots? Do you go down 10 spots? I I think somewhere in there would be the less charitable interpretation. Okay. Now, I think the thing that's really fascinating about Harden is just like a couple of these other guys that we can talk about here, Ben, have completely different styles, just the opposite kinds of styles. 
And I don't know if you want to start talking about anyone else here, but I think I think that everything that we laid out for Harden, the philosophical approach, some of these num- numbers, really segues nicely into somebody else to talk about. Is there any last minute Harden things you want to say, or do you want to get to the other guy here, Ben? No, no. Before we before we cross that road, I do want to uh, kind of because this is going to connect to what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Reggie Miller in a second. And we wanted to do this discussion together with these two guys because their styles are so, so, so different. And, and you get this almost perpendicular approach to thinking about basketball value. And of course, Harden is a modern player in a game where not only do we have more information today and we, we play in data ball, he's playing a style with his coach, Mike D'Antoni, who helped sort of revolutionize the sport in this way. And he's playing in, with a general manager in Daryl Morey, who also is pushing forward these ideas of threes, free throws, and layups that sort of synergize with Harden. So the microscope is on this, and it's understood why it's working. And it is working quite well. Reggie Miller, in the 1990s, it was the exact opposite it was not understood why it was working. I'm not even sure people realized back then how well it was working. I'm not even sure today in 2022, Cody, people realized how well it worked. So we will talk about that in a second. But to set that up, one of the things I want to—I alluded to it, I want to discuss here is the playoff results in Houston. And of course, these are, these are team results. We always want to make sure we're not going to equate a player to a team results. We're not going to equate, say, a player's offensive heights to his team's offensive ratings or something like that. But I do think it's important to contextualize the team results and how successful these teams were. So we're all on the same page because I, I think it's surprising for some people, especially when we go back and look at Miller. So with the Rockets, when Harden was in Houston, he made two conference finals made the conference finals in 2015, made the conference finals in 2018, and lost to Golden State. I can tell you from personal messages that I've received, no hard feelings from anyone in Houston about those two losses. Um, The net rating in the playoffs for Houston puts them at about the 85th percentile historically. That 2017 to 2019 stretch, the D'Antoni teams, Chris Paul's there for two years. They pushed the Warriors to the brink, not just maybe once, you could argue, but twice. All the other stretches that Harden was there fall between maybe the 52nd to 60th, let's say 50th to 70th percentile for playoff performance for a team. During, during this run... Um, they were outscored. They played eight teams that had a regular season margin of victory of six or better. Okay, or around that. I mean, it might be 5.9 or 5.8. But I was looking at these teams that were kind of championship level teams, six or better. They played eight teams like that during his time in Houston. They were outscored in every one of those series and they were outscored by an average of seven and a half points a game. So you did not have this tremendous playoff success over eight years, despite, to your point that we hit earlier, clearly building a championship-worthy team in 2018. Uh, We've talked about this in the conference finals MVP series that we did. That 2018 series, as close as it was, you had Chris Paul missing the last two games. You had Andre Iguodala missing four games. The Warriors still outscored the Rockets in that series by nine points per game. 
So it was Houston winning the close games to try to keep it competitive. And I think they were not only fairly competitive in that series, they were competitive the next year where they were only outscored by two points a game against Golden State. And they were clearly, even if they weren't very close to like beating Golden State specifically, that's a championship level team that they achieved. But I I just want to contextualize the playoff results. When you talk about someone like Miller, do you remember off the top of your head how many conference finals the Pacers made in the 90s? A lot? Is that a scientific number? That is the correct answer. A lot. Uh, They made five of them. Five conference finals in seven years. They, of course, made one finals in the year 2000. And the first thing I'll just say off the top of my head is, is that, to me, strikes me as the kind of success we would think to see from like a superstar type of individual who's with a particular team that's built around him, was clearly built around him specifically in slightly different iterations over an eight-year period, right? And they make five Final Fours, they make a conference finals. What's going on with the team results in the postseason? If we look at that same net rating, the Miller Pacers peak at the 90th percentile from 1993 to 1995. They peak higher in the playoffs than the Rockets. They have five separate runs at the 85th percentile or higher. And then if we look at the same thing and we say, like, what happens when they play really good teams? They played five teams that were around those plus six margin of victory teams that I alluded to earlier. They played five of them. They outscored or literally tied. One series was a dead tie in points. Three of them. They were outscored in the fourth series by 0.3 points per game. And only in 1998 did the Chicago Bulls absolutely smash them and destroy them in a seven-game series that they lost by an average of four points per game. Every single series the Pacers played for eight years, they were incredibly competitive. There's none of this Shaq getting sweeped out. There's none of these lopsided blowouts. It doesn't matter who you look at. Like in 1994, they outscore the Magic by five points per game. The Magic were a plus four team. Then they outscore Atlanta by five points per game. Then the Knicks are a plus seven team. They lose to the Knicks in seven games in the conference finals. They score the exact same number of points as the Knicks do in that series. Basically, every series for eight years goes like this. And to me, I've always kind of wondered, looking back, like, A, do people realize how annoyingly competitive the Indiana Pacers were with the team that they had? And B... What does that actually say about this team? And when we get to Miller's scoring stats and his playoff stats, and we talked about Isaiah Thomas as one of the great playoff improvers uh, of all time. I mean, Miller may actually hold that mantle. His jump in the playoffs is absolutely bonkers. What does that say about like a decade of excellence? And I think to, to paint more of the, the context here, because we talked about Harden, the fact that like the team is built around him, right? Daryl Morey is the owner, right? We have uh, Mike D'Antoni, who's like revolutionizing this kind of basketball, who's like taking it to the brink with him. This he makes it Reggie Miller makes it to the conference finals with a couple of different coaches. It's not like he's with Larry Brown this whole time. He was with Larry Brown for a couple of them, but it's not like he's on these really strong defensive teams that have like this, this really strong creating point guard that's setting him up with everything, right? It's not necessarily a team, a coach, or even a context that maximizes his abilities. And I think that's a key thing that I find really fascinating with Miller is it's not like the Pacers team was built in a way that's like, all right, we're gonna showcase Reggie Miller as like 
like the main idea of this whole time, but he's also kind of the like underlying engine that makes the whole thing work as well as it is. And I know Ben, I know that Reggie is just one of your your one of your favorite players to talk about. So where where do you want to go here, breaking down exactly what makes Reggie Miller so incredible? Well, I actually think when you watch the playoff series for most of them, he actually is sort of the primary cog in the wheel because of his movement, because he gets down on the baseline and you run so many sets for him. He doesn't go stand in the corner on possessions. There's no taking turns. Even even when they post up Rick Smith, and Rick Smith uh, was the other kind of big scorer on that team, you know, whether he was the second best player at any given point in time or whether it was Detlef Schremp before he was traded, then Derek McKee, you know, those were kind of like your top three. It was Miller, Rick Smith, and either Detlef Schrempf or Derek McKee. And then at the end of the 90s, when Larry Bird was there, they developed more depth. They had Jalen Rose coming off the bench. They had an old Chris Mullen who could also run around with Miller. They had Travis Best and Mark Jackson. Is that a reasonable kind of team to expect to never be easy to eliminate in the playoffs and make five Final Fours? I mean, that's kind of where my mind has gone over the years because when I originally did this project... And Miller came out so high, even as someone who is an advocate of Miller, I don't think he has an MVP level peak. And I was like, well, even with the longevity, man, that is a really high number for Reggie Miller. But I'm going to make the case here that I think not only was there reasons that the contemporaries missed how he was so valuable that we can easily see today, 20 or 30 years later, but the idea that we're even going extremely far against contemporary viewpoints. I don't actually think holds water. Like we talked about the actual playoff results of the teams and the success and things like that. We'll get to Miller's case as one of the best scorers ever. You, you heard me correctly on that. One of the best scorers ever. We'll get to that case in a second. But let's just talk about the contemporary voting results for a second, shall we, Cody? Contemporary voting results. So what do you mean by this? Contemporary voting results. I went back and looked at all NBA team votes. And and there's this sort of thing when Miller comes up where people, they send me messages and they're like, come on, Ben, this is a ridiculous case you're making. Reggie Miller only made five all-star teams uh, and he only made three all-NBA teams. That's how he was. Th- that I, I lived through that era. We all know that's about how good he was. Yes, that is uh, that you know his final total in the accolades. But... Cody, do you know that Reggie Miller got all NBA votes 16 years apart? Like Reg- somebody he, voted for him to make the team in one yeah, year. He was make he was getting all NBA votes to make the team in 1990 and the last year he got votes was 2005. That's unbelievable. That that doesn't so, make sense. Well, so there were people that and the 2005 one is because of the circumstances of the team and there's no way he was an all NBA level player, but even 13 straight years and I'll talk about some of these seasons in a second, there were people who were maybe having an understanding or an inkling of what was going on there uh, or giving him credit for his playoff acumen in the regular season. So it's not like this completely revisionist thing. It's just something that wasn't in the mainstream. Uh, By the way, the record for all NBA votes, LeBron James has 19 years in a row. (laughs) 19 years in a row, LeBron James has received an all NBA vote. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar used to have that record at 18 years apart. LeBron now 19 years apart. But that is a regular season award, right? 
And the thing we know that no one disputes in the slightest is that Miller not only improves in the playoffs, but improves by a decent amount in the playoffs. And I just want to put some more color on those all NBA votes. 1990, he was fourth. uh, Excuse me. 1990, he just missed the third team. So if there was like a hypothetical fourth team, he had enough votes for the fourth team, along with Isaiah Thomas. 1994, he also would have been just missed, was on the hypothetical fourth team. 1999, he would have been on a hypothetical fourth team. So just in the regular season alone, you already had voters at the time who were like, this Reggie Miller fella for at least six years is fringe All-NBA in the regular season, right? I don't think people realize that as a starting point before you get into some of the stuff we're going to get into in a second with the ridiculous, did he really say that, scoring numbers. Yeah, and it, it's the same sort of thing I just talked about with, with James Harden. The fact that when you start putting together all of these seasons, it adds up. And when you add up even more of those seasons, like even though it's not to the same level as Harden, that still adds up. And something I want to, uh, not to come to my own defense here, but I think when I when I referenced that Miller wasn't necessarily the focal point, I think when I say that stylistically, he didn't seem to be the focal point in the way that you imagine or when you go and see other offensive focal points, it's not the same right, way. A right. lot of his actions, like Mark Jackson's pounding the ball, dumps it down to Rick Smiths and Miller might be coming off a uh, you know a couple pin downs he might be coming off a couple stagger screens on the baseline he's somewhere involved with the action but he's not the one that's necessarily creating for everyone else around right. him yeah yeah I think that's a good way to put it um, we talked about everything that Harden had accrued to get to this point in the list Miller I have at eight or nine all NBA level seasons and remember we just talked about contemporaries who at the time knew nothing about gravity, knew nothing about spacing, this wasn't in their head, did not appreciate true shooting percentage or three-point shots, were not into efficiency, offensive rating, and margin of victory and things like that. And they were voting based on the regular season, not the playoffs, and they had him at six fringe all-NBA teams. Uh, Not only do I have him at eight or nine all-NBA level seasons in terms of quality, I think he's got four more all-star years in there. So basically this chunk of years from 1990 to 2002, that is incredible longevity at the height of an all-star caliber player. And I think that's the first big thing to realize when we go back and we look at Reggie. And I... I think where you want to go with this, and I think the interesting part about Miller, the part that's just like, when you dive into it, it's just just mind-blowing, is the fact that like, you know, the way that you frame it there, it makes it sound like that the voters were off, that they didn't quite understand how good Reggie was. But we're not necessarily talking about how good Reggie Miller was. Like, those, those valuations you have aren't necessarily speaking to his impact of the regular season. Because Reggie Miller, if if this voting happened after the playoffs, it might have been a different case because, man, did he ramp it up in the playoffs. It's just, it it doesn't make sense when you see his performances compared to what he does in the regular season. So, So let's stop the teasing. Let's just go with the raw. These are raw. There's no adjustments. There's no, just, just, this is the raw stuff. Raw scoring numbers starting in 1992. Reggie Miller has not, he played 20 playoff series. He has nine playoff series at 25 points per game or better. He has five playoff series at 29 points per game. You heard that right. Five playoff series at 29 points per game or better. So I think right away, this idea that he's like an 18 or 20 point per game kind of scorer who does his own thing but doesn't pass much. And passing is a weakness that that we might get to in a second. But 
I mean, right away in a lot of these postseason series in the heart of the 90s against really, really good defenses and teams like the Hawks and the Pat Riley Knicks and the Jordan Pippen Bulls, he's coming in at moderately high scoring volume. And then that's before we get to the efficiency, which almost looks like a typo or something. Um, Another thing is people are big on per game stats, especially back in the day versus per 36 or per possession or something like that. And because of his style, he wasn't overused in the regular season. He only played 33 to 36 minutes per game between 1994 and 1999. But in the playoffs, he goes back to a more typical superstar load. He plays 36 to 39 minutes. And a lot of those years, he's over 40 minutes per game and a ton of other playoff runs. And so in the playoffs, that's where you get these 25, 27, 29, 30-point-per-game series. Let's talk about the efficiency, Cody. When you actually look at the opponent defenses that he's playing and you look at Reggie Miller's 60-something percent true shooting, it comes out to a scoring peak in the postseason of 29 points per 75 adjusted for the opponent at plus 10% efficiency. 29 points per 75 at plus 10% efficiency. So you are in like, you know, the 98th or 99th percentile in both volume and efficiency. I think a fun a fun game for anyone, you know, subscribe Thinking Basketball Patreon, go into the database and just sort Reggie Miller's playoff scoring. The just the the points per 75 sort that and then let your eyes marry it with the true shooting percentage next to it. It actually doesn't make sense. Like you th- even if you think you know ball, go do it. It's it's honestly a work of art to see just how ridiculous Reggie Miller was scoring in the playoffs. No, it it doesn't make sense because you almost feel uncomfortable that this guy <laughs> with this reputation is putting up these numbers and you know about the efficiency. It is technically 99th percentile all time in scoring volume and efficiency. Now the all time peak playoff volume, we said Harden doesn't get there. Harden comes down to 30, 31, 32 at his peak is Michael Jordan. He gets up to 34 to 35 points per 75. He does that on plus 7% efficiency. If we have a special non-Michael Jordan category, the highest volume scorers in NBA history are 31 to 32 points per 75. So I think Miller is scoring more and doing more. And it goes back to your point about the offense being built around him. He's doing it in such a different way. Harden has the ball all the time and he's making decisions and he's carving you up and he's making passes. Miller's running around all the time, which frees up his teammates to do stuff. And then not only does it free up his teammates to create offense for them because of gravity, you got a second defender chasing Reggie. But what it means is you can flow from a Rick Smith's post up. Well, you could actually start with Miller coming off the screen. If it's not there, you throw it into Smith's and Smith's can then go to work and no one is kind of losing any lubrication in the offense. And then Miller keeps moving. And if something up Something else opens up uh, because of that. The ball gets kicked back around. And, you know, this is how you end up with what looks like a more egalitarian offense, but it's constantly built around Miller's motion. Just a completely different thing. And amazingly to me, Cody, a thing that in the postseason, at least at the team level, and again, Miller's team's offense does not mean Miller's offense was this good, but the Pacers' playoff offenses look actually better than the Rockets' playoff offenses with James Harden. It's incredible. 
And I, I think to talk about the discomfort, too, talking about Reggie Miller in this way is, you know, you go, you watch a mid-90s Pacers game. It, honestly, the, the shocking thing is you go put on a mid, like a 92 Pacers playoff game and you put a 2000s Pacers game and you're like, is there any difference between Reggie Miller? Like, what am I missing here? <laughs> but I, th- I think the discomfort, again, goes back to the idea that, like, he's not scoring in the same way that you're used to other people scoring, right? Even when he creates off the dribble, and I think he's actually fairly underrated creating off the bounce, but he didn't. He didn't dribble too much. Like Harden kind of had the hypnotic, I'm going to dribble 8, 9, 10, 11 times before hitting my crossover. Reggie Miller was a lot more comfortable getting into the triple threat position. Boom, boom, all of a sudden hits you with one or two dribbles, pull up jumper, gets to the basket or draws a foul or something like that. And even like when he's running off ball, other teams understood how dangerous this was. Like even if we're not, even if other people aren't necessarily giving him giving him his flowers for how good he is. Other teams understood this. There's a really clear image I have in my mind when they're playing the Knicks at one point where Miller fl- uh, flies up to the top of the perimeter and two Knicks players literally sprint out, closing out so hard that they cannot stop and just follow him by tackling him. And it's not like a mid-90s, like, I'm going to tackle this guy to send him out. They just they couldn't close out fast enough on this guy. So teams defensively understood how scary he was. He also just like, man, Ben, it's... It's unbelievable watching this guy work in the playoffs. That's just how the Knicks play defense, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> just when they needed to, they would they would throw in a nice tackle, second down, reset the chains. Uh, to your point about off the bounce and sort of how active this movement was, James Harden at his peak in the playoffs, 12, 13 free throw attempts per 100 possessions, something like that. Miller at his peak, 11 or 12 free throw attempts per 100 possessions in the playoffs. I, that's still, to me, one of the biggest differentiators that I don't think people realize when they do the whole lineage of Ray Allen and Clay Thompson and all these other players that play off ball. It's like Reggie attacked the basket and he knew how to draw contact and he knew how to get in. The, he was quick. He was super quick, super, super quick. So you get that first step, you get a little shake. He uses his shot to set up his drive a lot. So he's coming off screen, instant turn, catch. And he's one of the underrated things about him athletically. He's got this wonky shooting motion. But I feel like he talks about it in an interview somewhere. So if you know of that and you can link it to us on Twitter at LG35, uh, is how he comes off curls and then positions his hips and his feet to shoot as he's catching the ball in one motion. This is the very kind of thing that James Harden athletically is not necessarily equipped to do. And maybe if he practices it, practices it for his whole career, he could do it. But it's, it's a skill to be able to take a pass that you're catching in one motion, like a wide receiver, and already turn... Like, he's running full speed, right? John Starks is chasing him full speed off a screen and he just cut and faked and juked and probably pushed off a little bit and did whatever he could to get open. Then he flies off the screen at 90 miles an hour and as he's catching it, he's squaring his body to the basket and he shoots these shots sometimes, drifting, floating, it doesn't matter. It's still square, it's still going in. And I think this lands, for me, on maybe the most underrated and important skill in all of basketball. And I want to emphasize underrated. It's just shooting shots accurately. Like our brain can't process that. You know what I mean? Our brain is like, and you and I were talking about a little bit with Isaiah Thomas last time. We were texting about John Havlicek. It's like you sample a player and you watch him. But 
over thousands and thousands of shots, Miller making 40% of these threes this way, sprinting off of screens, shooting 48 or 50% from the mid-range on these leaners, whatever it is. The difference between that and 45%, the difference between 40% from three and 37 or 38% from three, that's what gives you the juice scoring numbers. That's what gives your team an extra point or two per game on the scoreboard that's very difficult for your brain to detect. And it turns out Reggie Miller was one of the best players in history at just putting the ball in the basket when he shot it from the outside. So ultimately, taking all this that we said, the the improvement from the regular season to the playoffs to literally either all-time or sub-all-time scoring efficiency type of numbers, this off-ball ability, uh, maybe maybe the best off-ball player of all time. Obviously, Stephen Curry's always in that conversation. There's a couple other players that Reggie Miller's got to be there. You you mentioned it earlier. Does he, does he crack the top 10 all-time scorers in your book? Do you think his scoring game alone, devoid, if we take away all the other parts of his game, his defense, passing, things like that, his scoring alone, does it stack up against the other top 10 scorers of all time? Well, I've done not just one, but two podcasts on this. Uh, I think the first episode of the Thinking Basketball podcast and in the 50th episode, we reboot the idea. There's so many little nuances and subtleties to scoring, like the diversity and the different types of teams you can be on and things like that. So you know how much I love ranges. There's no number in my head that I would commit to. But let's just say this when it comes to the scoring. To understand how rare this level of scoring he has, you know, strong volume uh, and good efficiency, great all-time level efficiency is. I scaled the numbers back, Cody, a little bit. I said, let's just look at 27 points at plus 7% efficiency scores over three-year stretches in the playoffs with at least 1,000 minutes. So we have some qualifier to hit. Uh, Not many players have ever done it. Amari Stoudemire did it once. Dirk Nowitzki did it once. Um, but when I say once, I mean one unique run. Like, you know, the years don't overlap. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon did it once. James Harden barely did it once. Let me say that again. I scaled back the criteria from Miller's best playoff scoring numbers. And the guy we just talked about may be a case for the, one of the 10 best offensive players of all time. He did it once. 27.8 points per 75 on plus 7.1 true shooting percentage, so he barely hit this criteria. Jerry West did it once. Kawhi Leonard did it once. Michael Jordan did it once. Ray Allen did it once. Shaq did it once. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did it twice. Kevin Durant did it twice. LeBron James did it twice. And Steph Curry barely did it twice. That's the whole list in the history of the NBA who has done that. Um, I don't think every one of those scores is a better scorer than Reggie Miller. If you listen to the episode, you'll get a clear idea. I do think six, seven, eight guys probably have a fairly air, airtight case. But after that, Cody, um, if you pick Reggie Miller and you said he's the best scorer of the remaining bunch, I don't know how much I would argue with you. But if you said that in the 90s, not only would they look at you like crazy because there was no basketball reference to check playoff stats like this. No one. I, let me Let me make that clear. If you're a younger listener, or maybe you're an older listener and you're, you forget these things like I do, we didn't have access to all this playoff data at the individual and team level to just query and understand and compare historically. We didn't know 15 or 20 years ago very easily that Reggie Miller in his playoff scoring runs over a s- sustained sample was in the 99th percentile in volume and the 99th percentile in efficiency. We didn't know that. 
So I totally understand why people, uh, when they first hear that, like I did, genuflect at the idea of Miller being this good. But the other thing you would get in the 90s is this idea of, well, he can't be as good as a scorer because he's being passed to. He's dependent on his teammates to pass him the ball. Off-ball scoring is not very good. So by that logic, it sounds like the Pacers were filled with great passers that were just constantly there to to set them up. Just Draymond Greens and, and Steve Nash is all over the place, right? I the, Some of the early Pacers teams had serious passing problems. And in fact, they're, they're, they have this kind of like point guard carousel before they get Mark Jackson to come in. And Mark Jackson is a good pass. He's a very good passer. And he synergizes with Miller like that. But it seems to not matter that much. Reggie's doing this with Pooh Richardson at point guard. Vern Fleming at point guard. Haywood Workman, who would go on to become a referee later on. None of these guys, if you, if you weren't a big 90s hoop head, none of these guys are starting on many teams. Let's put it that way. These are reserve-level point guards. They didn't really have that. Derek McKee joining the team as an excellent passer. That helped. But it was really, you know, Rick Smith wasn't a great passer. It was really just, these are basic passes half the time. And the better your passers are, just like with Golden State, the more you're going to take advantage of the gaps you carve up in the defense with all your movement. But I think 30, you know, 20 or 30 years later, it's a lot easier for people to understand that moving without the ball and catching and scoring in these dynamic fashions isn't inherently less valuable than isolation scoring or or low post scoring. But in the trust me, in the nineties, it was flamed. Like you did not have the same skill if you could not do this on your own, in space, in isolation, at the park, one on one, 17 dribbles minimum. You have to score on your guy's head. And the irony to me is that Miller seems to be one of the hardest players to stop in playoff history, so much so that he takes a leap from his regular season that's bigger than maybe any player we can find. I have to ask, Ben, because I'm genuinely curious about this. A lot, Most of the games that I end up watching, just because they're the easiest ones to find are a lot of playoff games, so the samples that I end up watching are, are playoff samples. What specifically made it so that Miller was able to ramp up? Was it just the fact, like you said, he was he was playing an increased load? He was playing more minutes in the playoffs? Like, why why did he actually become better against better defenses? Like, I know we talked about all of that, all of this, this off-ball action and the, these tricks he has and, and whatever else. But how does that translate to actually being better against the best? I, I feel like, one, of course, he's playing more. But two, it's this intersection, probably, I don't know of his personality, where he's out there and willing to, in crunch time, he wants to take the shot, he wants to ramp up, he wants to play the best competition. I mean, this was a guy that loved going toe-to-toe with Michael Jordan, so much that they got in a fight one time in a game. Uh, and, like, when he was, like, he has possessions, Cody, that are really weird, because he's not a great defender, but I think he's underrated a little bit as this wiry six foot seven man defender. I have possessions in my database of him blocking Michael Jordan's jumper in 1990 and then also sticking with Michael Jordan in 1998 in isolation man defense. And when you run the numbers, like the Pacers were always a good defensive team, shooting guards always underperformed a little bit against the Pacers, things like that. So he wasn't a very good defender, but I don't think he was actually really a negative defender or a problem or much of a problem uh, defensively. So you get this guy that wants to go toe to toe 
personality wise wants to be on the stage in the biggest moments wants to be bowing in the center of the court in chicago wants to be pointing and waving at spike lee on national tv and then the team the pacers they clearly know who else on the team is going to grab the mantle versus hey what if it's the playoffs let's run floppy for reggie every time and you can see this sometimes in playoff series where they'll stick with a particular action for a long time until it stopped it because as I've talked about with not just Steph Curry but I have an entire video on the thinking basketball YouTube channel about the history of movement movement has a ton of built-in counters when you don't have to worry about dribbling the basketball you're off ball and you can run around so for instance the Pacers over and over and over, I think when either the 93 or 94 series against the Knicks, I don't know, they all blend together. But they'll just run this same set where a big, maybe Smits, is down standing underneath, uh, like on the block near the, near the basket, and Miller's standing next to him. And Miller can figure out which way he wants to dart out off of him. And from there, you can back cut, you can back door, you can go to the other side of the court, you can come to the strong side of the court. And then when you catch that, you can flow into the Smiths post up. So they could run that same play like 30 straight times and simplify the offense and not worry about losing anything on defense because we're going to put Dale Davis out there. We're going to put Derek McKee out there. We're going to put Haywood Workman out there. So I think the function of having a team that didn't have any better options and Reggie's personality and these coaches, especially with Larry Brown, just like this is... Larry Brown is like one of the scrappiest coaches, you know, maybe ever. He says, we will do whatever it takes. I will never forget Larry Brown playing four guards against Shaq in the 2001 finals. He had Raja Bell at power forward in the fourth quarter against Shaq in the 2001 finals. So I, I, that to me, uh, Cody, is sort of what's happening along with the inherent skill that we've talked about of just the combination of movement, quickness, quick decision-making, and skill shooting the ball extremely accurately in a way that our brains maybe don't even process. And something I want to add to with that is, you say they may have run the same action multiple times in a row, but when Reggie's the one, and you kind of touched on this, it didn't end up looking like the same action every time. Like The the action was like, Reggie, here's multiple different options for you to take. Figure it out. See what you can do from there. And he was so good at like, oh, my guy looks that way for a second. I'm going this way. Up oh, there is a second screen here. I'm going to actually twist around them and come around this way. So just a master of moving around. And then I think if you were to ask other people who was able to ramp it up, I think Shaq himself had a quote. I think it might have been after 95 where he was like, Rick Smith, he really worked me. I mean, that guy was just working me in the post. Sha- Shaq loved Rick Smith. So maybe a few people would think that Reggie had a little bit help, too. No, Rick Smith is a good, like, complimentary scorer. Uh, and maybe a decent sized body. You know, he's not a great defensive player, but a big body in the paint that can bang with some of the big men in the Eastern Conference of the 90s. Offers you a little rim protection with that 7-4 size. As the Davis brothers came on, Dale Davis first. I mean, they had some nice complementary defensive pieces and things like that. So overall, a good team. Um, overall, the construction at Smith's, I think Smith's peaks at like 25 or 26 points per 75 as well. Uh, with really good efficiency in the playoffs. He's one of the sneaky, underrated playoff scorers you'll ever find. But I, I, I see that, and I think that's a, uh, something that when you watch the film, Miller's style just facilitates that so easily. It's like this sneaky guy that can just get his post-ups because Reggie's not monopolizing the ball. Um, we've said a lot about these two players. <laughs> we've said a ton. For me... If anything, over the last few years, I have become 
more solidified and slightly higher on Reggie Miller's overall peak. I don't think we can have the same conversation about him being, say, one of the 20 best offensive players ever. But, I mean, you want to talk about top 25 or 30 uh, offensive peaks ever. I think that's where Miller enters the conversation. And when you rack up all those years that we talked about, for me, I have Reggie Miller uh, at 29th all-time on this career value list. I have James Harden 30th right behind him. And again, like, I, I, I really want to make, to to emphasize that final point, because I think when people bring up Reggie Miller, there's this idea that the argument is Reggie Miller is like one of the greatest offensive players ever. But he just, he didn't have the passing package. We actually had a pretty, we had a long pedantic argument or conversation about uh, Miller's passing that I, I think holds him back a little bit on that front, especially compared to somebody like Harden. But when you're also looking at an absolute peak, like you said, I think Re- Reggie's Probably at least somewhat of a positive defender. I really liked his ability to close out. He definitely blocked some shots with his length. Uh, had his flaws, like you said. Definitely isn't going to be sniffing an All NBA team, but he gets he gets a little loose sometimes defensively. He gets a little he gets a little gambly out there. Yeah, d- just a little bit. Maybe doesn't always have the quickest feet. I think he could lock in against Jordan when he really was like, "This is Michael Jordan. I'm taking him out." But. I don't think he locked up everyone or did, stayed with everyone quite like that. So when you have this idea that there's not much taking it off the table and he's just building up this long, solid career, that's how he overtakes Harden. Not necessarily the fact that he's a better offensive player. Well, he's, uh, you know, we've our Pananta conversation was about where we would describe him as a passer. You know, what does it mean to be an OK passer? Uh, you have to remember he's a better passer than probably like 90% of big men uh, that have ever played in the NBA. But, you know, as as a primary kind of or strong suited scoring weapon on offense, I mean, he's not a particularly strong passer. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think a lot of wings and guards are better. He's creating offense through off-ball gravity, through the spacing effect of being able to, you know, pull defenders out of the lane, uh, synergize with basically all kinds of other players. And I think we're talking about him as a number one in Indiana, but one of the alluring things that I've discussed so much and you have as well with someone like Miller is he would be just a phenomenal number two because everything we've described and the style that we described doesn't change when you play next to a ball-dominant player or whatever. And as we've seen in Golden State, it might only amplify if you get a second off-ball player. The Pacers had like a mini version of that with a late-stage Chris Mullen, um, but it all fits together perfectly. And the, the total package of that is, as you said, a lower-peak player because you don't have the passing and then you don't have too much movement. Uh, I think he's around neutral on defense, but you still end up with someone who just... Uh, for a decade, I mean, for th- like, you turn on the 2000 finals and you turn on the 92 playoffs, and you're like, are these? Does this guy age? What's what's going on? Did he have the fountain of youth? What's happening? Uh, I think we skipped some players. Who did we skip? We we got to Patrick Ewing last time at number 35. Is that right? Yep, yep. And then uh, we have this this gap between 34 to 30, where Harden ultimately ended. Yeah, so we have uh, Reggie Miller at 29, Harden at 30, uh, filling in the gap. These are basically no changes from the original list for me. I have Bob Pettit at number 31. He was 31 last time. I have John Havlicek at number 32. He was 32 last time. I have Jason Kidd at 33. He was number 34 last time. And then Artis Gilmore. I never, I never know what to do 
with artist Gilmore, I was able to watch a ton more. Well, not a ton. There just aren't that many, but a handful of 1973 games, 1974 games, and 1976 games from the ABA. It was really cool to see artists at his heyday. And I, I always come away where I'm like, I kind of feel underwhelmed about Gilmore, but also he's really, really good, especially when he's in the ABA. And somehow he's moved. I don't even know how. I don't think I changed anything, but he's 34th on this list, and um, he's gone up two spots. He was 36 last time. Maybe it's because Patrick Ewing slid behind him and things like that. So uh, that's where we are on the list right now. Cody, do you have any anything you want to hit on any of those guys before we call it a day? There's a question I want to ask about about Jason Kidd that I always – it doesn't sit right with me, and it always makes me confused about his offensive game. And, you know, I I don't want to spend too much time on these guys, but I want to hear what you have to think about this. So, you know, Jason Kidd, obviously passing guy. That was probably what he was most known for. When you go back and watch, it's his defense that really stands out to me. That's where he gets a ton of his impact. But the offense, and I'm trying to find exactly what uh, what my stat is here. But ultimately... When Jason Kidd is playing for the Nets, I don't remember exactly how long his his Nets run is, but I'm pretty sure he only has one year where the Nets have a positive um, a positive offensive rating relative to the rest of the league. His entire tenure there, and I think it's only like a plus point two or something like that. And even yeah. even when he's paired up with Carter, even when it's past like the defensive minded, minded Kenyon Martin, uh, Jason Kidd teams, when he's with Vince Carter, they never have a positive offense. And it's always weird to me when you have, you know, you have these two games that should probably fit together and Vince Carter, Jason Kidd not producing a high level offense or even like a above average offense. What do you make about that? And how do you land on where Jason Kidd is offensively? Well, I don't think he's a high peak offensive player. But I think the really, short of us starting another podcast here, (laughs) um, I think the short answer for what you're getting at is he is a ceiling raiser kind of offensive player to me. So you're not going to get any of the one-man offense stuff we talked about. You're not going to get any of the centerpiece of really strong playoff offenses or, to your point, necessarily even regular season offenses. But he was so good at pushing pace such a good passer in transition in the half court and a pesky little rebounder. All of those are amplifying skills and even some off ball movement. And then even like, if I had to say, you know, what else does he bring to the table offensively, his size, so he can pick on smaller guards and mismatches. We talked about that with the 2002 Eastern conference finals against Kenny Anderson and the Celtics. That's not a high peak offensive player, but it's the type of offensive player that as you put better and better talent around him, I think you continue to extract maybe even more value than you would on a uh, subpar team. And then, of course, with Kidd, he's there because he's, you know, arguably the best defensive small guard in the history of the league. Just great, great defensive season after great, great defensive season for years. And even when he was older, kind of a post prime. Jason Kidd in Dallas in 2011 on the championship team, I was insanely impressed with tracking all of those games and just how good he was defensively, not just against point guards, but able to slide up and play twos and threes in 2011. So that's the short of it for Kidd to me. He's actually not, I wouldn't put him in the same conversation. I wouldn't have him as a top 40 type offensive player peak of all time, but his defense and his amplifying skills on offense and his longevity uh, you know, we talk, we're talking about a guy that was like 
an all NBA level guy in what 1999, the end of the 90s, something like that. And that run where he was not an all NBA, maybe even not even an all star, but still really good 12, 13 years later in Dallas. That gets you to this range, of course, right? Okay. And I would, I, I would bring up things about Havlicek, but I don't want this to go to two, three hours today. Well, well, we'll get out. We'll we'll wrap up the show now. But I do have one thing I want to say about Havelcheck that you've reminded me of here, which is he actually made eleven All NBA teams in real life. Um, we talked about this briefly last time. Havelcheck is top twenty five, maybe top thirty on most lists that you'll see published. We talked about the USA Today seventy five list. We talked about ESPN's list. We mentioned. Uh, Bill Simmons' book of basketball, I think in the update, John Havlicek is 16th. So you have a guy that's actually very similar in career shape to me without having this super high peak, without having like an MVP level peak to what we talked about with Reggie Miller. I have them extremely close in an all-time list like this, right? And and we should remind people that I, I don't really care about the number too much. It's more trying to corral the range. The guys we talked about today, I could have Harden with a high-end evaluation all the way up to the mid-20s, 26, and a low-end evaluation would bring him right back to about 40 or 41. Miller is very similar. He could go uh, mid-20s and then back into the late 30s. But Havlicek... He gets the actual credit for those things. He's on the old Celtics teams. He's got the great reputation coming out of Ohio State. I think he starts making all NBA teams prematurely, frankly. He makes one in 1964. The league is very small. It's his second year. He's still kind of a gunner. His passing hasn't come in. He's still a cog in the Celtics offense. He would go on to play crazy minutes in the playoffs for the Celtics at his heyday from 1968 to 1974, which is a big deal to me. Um, But he's like top 25, top 30, whereas all the things we talked about with Miller, it's a very similar type of career to me. But when you look at major publications, Reggie is usually, USA Today came out 48th, ESPN 76th this year, he came out 51st. Slam, the last time Slam ran a list in 2018, he was 55. So that's kind of the the connection I want to make and the, and the bridge, the gap I want to bridge where Havelcheck is the acknowledgement of this kind of type of career where you do it for a very long time. You're very good in the postseason. You get better in the postseason than in the regular season. He actually got the accolades. He got the titles as well because he got to play with MVP, literal MVP level players like Dave Cowens, five-time MVP, Bill Russell, Sam Jones, another all NBA guy for the Celtics and on and on and on. So Havlicek at uh, 32, kid at 33, Gilmore 34, um, Bob Pettit at 31. And I think I think that's it. Anything else you want to add? No. This is man, this has just been too fun. We could spend an hour on each one of these guys and it would be it wouldn't be enough. Well, next time we're going to have a very very boring episode about uh two point guards who like to run pick and roll. We'll just we'll leave it at that. One ran pick and roll in the 80s and 90s a lot and the other did it in the 2000s. We'll tee that up for next time. Uh, if you want to support this show and all things Thinking Basketball, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. The stats that we talked about today, we have a database of all these stats, regular season playoff team stuff going back to the shot clock in 1955. We also have a, our Discord community where we do our monthly live Q&A, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks as always for listening 
all the way through until the end. And of course, wherever you are listening, I hope you are having a great day.